0: Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com Places to go to find cool slippers and even cooler cult film t-shirts BunnySlippers.com, FoundItemClothing.com Whether it be zombie slippers or zombie t-shirts They've got you covered Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast dedicated to giving you spooky stories gothic stories science fiction horror whatever we can get our hands on we've been doing themed months we'll see if that works in the next year but hey so far so good and we've been having experts on just like andrew grace who will be joining us like last week at the end of this week or the beginning of next week to talk about the bronte sisters and this week is part two of jane eyre So, yeah, that's chapters, what, 12 through 26, I think? I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our monthly show. You can join us for that, where we talk about the Cthulhu Mythos with experts like Ken Hite and Adam Scott Glancy. And also join us for sometime during the month. We always have a cool, cool special from... David Heath, whether it be from People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of the Universe, will be there. And you can check him out at davescorneroftheuniverse.com or just Google it. And thank you so much. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you do that. And also check out pgttcm.com. Check out the t-shirts and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all that other good stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Google it. All right, here we go. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host... Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton only on Monster Kid Radio
1: Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte Chapter thirty The more I knew of the inmates of Moorhouse, the better I liked them. In a few days I had so far recovered my health, that I could sit up all day, and walk out sometimes. I could join with Diana and Mary in all their occupations, converse with them as much as they wished, and aid them when and where they would allow me. There was a reviving pleasure in this intercourse, of a kind now tasted by me for the first time, the pleasure arising from perfect congeniality of tastes, sentiments, and principles. I liked to read what they liked to read—what they enjoyed delighted me. What they approved, I reverenced. They loved their sequestered home. I too, in the grey, small, antique structure, with its low roof, its latticed casements, its mouldering walls, its avenue of aged firs—all grown aslant under the stress of mountain winds, its garden dark with yew and holly, and where no flowers but of the hardiest species would bloom found a charm both potent and permanent. They clung to the purple moors behind and around their dwelling, to the hollow vale into which the pebbly bridle-path leading from their gate descended, and which wound between fern banks first, and then among a few of the wildest little pasture-fields that ever bordered a wilderness of heath, or gave sustenance to a flock of grey moorland sheep, with their little mossy-faced lambs. They clung to this scene, I say with a perfect enthusiasm of attachment, I could comprehend the feeling, and share both its strength and truth. I saw the fascination of the locality, I felt the consecration of its loneliness. My eye feasted on the outline of swell and sweep, on the wild colouring communicated to ridge and dell by moss, by heath-bell, by flower-sprinkled turf, by brilliant bracken and mellow granite crag. These details were just to me what they were to them, so many pure and sweet sources of pleasure. The strong blast and the soft breeze, the rough and the halcyon day, the hours of sunrise and sunset, the moonlight and the clouded night, developed for me, in these regions, the same attraction as for them, wound round my faculties the same spell that entranced theirs. Indoors we agreed equally well. They were both more accomplished and better read than I was, but with eagerness I followed in the path of knowledge they had trodden before me. I devoured the books they lent me, then it was full satisfaction to discuss with them in the evening what I had perused during the day. Thought fitted thought, opinion met opinion. We coincided, in short, perfectly. If in our trio there was a superior and a leader, it was Diana. Physically, she far excelled me. She was handsome, she was vigorous. In her animal spirits there was an affluence of life and certainty of flow, such as excited my wonder, while it baffled my comprehension. I could talk a while when the evening commenced, but the first gush of vivacity and fluency gone, I was fain to sit on a stool at Diana's feet, to rest my head on her knee, and listen alternately to her and Mary, while they sounded thoroughly the topic on which I had but touched. Diana offered to teach me German. I liked to learn of her. I saw the part of instructress pleased and suited her. That of scholar pleased and suited me no less. Our natures dovetailed. Mutual affection, of the strongest kind, was the result. They discovered I could draw. Their pencils and colour-boxes were immediately at my service. My skill, greater in this one point than theirs, surprised and charmed them. Mary would sit and watch me by the hour together, then she would take lessons, and a docile, intelligent, assiduous pupil she made. Thus occupied, and mutually entertained, days passed like hours, and weeks like days. As to Mr. St John, the intimacy which had arisen so naturally and rapidly between me and his sisters did not extend to him. One reason of the distance yet observed between us was, that he was comparatively seldom at home. A large proportion of his time appeared devoted to visiting the sick and poor among the scattered population of his parish. No weather seemed to hinder him in these pastoral excursions. Rain or fair, he would, when his hours of morning study were over, take his hat, and, followed by his father's old pointer, Carlo, go out on his mission of love or duty. I scarcely know in which light he regarded it. Sometimes when the day was very unfavourable, his sisters would expostulate. He would then say, with a peculiar smile, more solemn than cheerful. And if I let a gust of wind or a sprinkling of rain turn me aside from these easy tasks, what preparation would such sloth be for the future I propose to myself?" Diana and Mary's general answer to this question was a sigh, and some minutes of apparently mournful meditation. But besides his frequent absences, there was another barrier to friendship with him, he seemed of a reserved, an abstracted, and even of a brooding nature. Zealous in his ministerial labours, blameless in his life and habits, he yet did not appear to enjoy that mental serenity, that inward content, which should be the reward of every sincere Christian and practical philanthropist. Often of an evening when he sat at the window, his desk and papers before him, he would cease reading or writing rest his chin on his hand, and deliver himself up to I know not what course of thought, but that it was perturbed and exciting might be seen in the frequent flash and changeful dilation of his eye. I think, moreover, that nature was not to him that treasury of delight it was to his sisters. He expressed once, and but once, in my hearing, a strong sense of the rugged charm of the hills, and an inborn affection for the dark roof and hoary walls he called his home, But there was more of gloom than pleasure in the tone and words in which the sentiment was manifested, and never did he seem to roam the moors for the sake of their soothing silence, never seek out or dwell upon the thousand peaceful delights they could yield. Incommunicative as he was, some time elapsed before I had an opportunity of gauging his mind. I first got an idea of its calibre when I heard him preach in his own church at Morton. I wish I could describe that sermon—but it is past my power. I cannot even render faithfully the effect it produced on me. It began calm. And indeed, as far as delivery and pitch of voice went, it was calm to the end. An earnestly felt, yet strictly restrained zeal breathed soon in the distinct accents, and prompted the nervous language. This grew to force—compressed, condensed, controlled. The heart was thrilled, the mind astonished, by the power of the preacher. Neither was softened. Throughout, there was a strange bitterness, an absence of consolatory gentleness. Stern allusions to Calvinistic doctrines—election, predestination, reprobation—were frequent, and each reference to these points sounded like a sentence pronounced for doom. When he had done, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness. For it seemed to me—I know not whether equally so to others— that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a depth where lay turbid dregs of disappointment, where moved troubling impulses of insatiate yearnings and disquieting aspirations. I was sure St. John Rivers, pure-lived, conscientious, zealous as he was, had not yet found that peace of God which passeth all understanding. He no more had found it, I thought, than had I, with my concealed and racking regrets for my broken idol and lost Elysium regrets to which I have latterly avoided referring, but which possessed me, and tyrannised over me ruthlessly. Meantime, a month was gone. Diana and Mary were soon to leave House and return to the far different life and scene which awaited them, as governesses in a large, fashionable south of England city, where each held a situation in families by whose wealthy and haughty members they were regarded only as humble dependents. And who neither knew nor sought out their innate excellencies, and appreciated only their acquired accomplishments as they appreciated the skill of their cook, or the taste of their waiting-woman. Mr. St. John had said nothing to me yet about the employment he had promised to obtain for me, yet it became urgent that I should have a vacation of some kind. One morning, being left alone with him a few minutes in the parlour, I ventured to approach the window recess, which his table, chair, and desk consecrated as a kind of study, and I was going to speak, though not very well knowing in what words to frame my inquiry, for it is at all times difficult to break the ice of reserve, glassing over such natures as his, when he saved me the trouble by being the first to commence a dialogue. Looking up as I drew near, "'You have a question to ask of me?' he said. "'Yes. I wish to know whether you have heard of any service I can offer myself to undertake.' I found or devised something for you three weeks ago. But as you seemed both useful and happy here, as my sisters had evidently become attached to you, and your society gave them unusual pleasure, I deemed it inexpedient to break in on your mutual comfort, till their approaching departure from Marsh End should render yours necessary." "'And they will go in three days now,' I said. "'Yes, and when they go, I shall return to the parsonage at Morton. Hannah will accompany me and this old house will be shut up." I waited a few moments, expecting he would go on with the subject first broached, but he seemed to have entered another train of reflection. His look denoted abstraction from me and my business. I was obliged to recall him to a theme which was, of necessity, one of close and anxious interest to me. "'What is the employment you had in view, Mr. Rivers? I hope this delay will not have increased the difficulty of securing it.' Oh no, since it is an employment which depends only on me to give, and you to accept." He again paused. There seemed a reluctance to continue. I grew impatient. A restless movement or two, and an eager and exacting glance fastened on his face, conveyed the feeling to him as effectually as words could have done, and with less trouble. "'You need me in no hurry to hear,' he said. Let me frankly tell you, I have nothing eligible or profitable to suggest. Before I explain, recall, if you please, my notice, clearly given, that if I helped you it must be as the blind man would help the lame. I am poor, for I find that, when I have paid my father's debts, all the patrimony remaining to me will be this crumbling grange, the row of scathed firs behind, and the patch of moorish soil with the yew-trees and holly-bushes in front. I am obscure. Rivers is an old name, but of the three sole descendants of the race, two earn the dependent's crust among strangers, and the third considers himself an alien from his native country, not only for life, but in death. Yes, and deems, and is bound to deem himself honoured by the lot, and aspires but after the day when the cross of separation from fleshly ties shall be laid on his shoulders, and when the head of that church militant of whose humblest members he is one, shall give the word— Rise! Follow me!" St. John said these words as he pronounced his sermons, with a quiet, deep voice, with an unflushed cheek, and a coruscating radiance of glance. He resumed. And since I am myself poor and obscure, I can offer you but a service of poverty and obscurity. You may even think it degrading, for I see now your habits have been what the world calls refined. Your tastes lean to the ideal, and your society has at least been among the educated. But I consider that no service degrades which can better our race. I hold that the more arid and unreclaimed the soil where the Christian labourer's task of tillages appointed him, the scantier the meed his toil brings, the higher the honour. His under such circumstances is the destiny of the pioneer, and the first pioneers of the Gospel were the Apostles. Their captain was Jesus, the Redeemer himself." "'Well,' I said, as he again paused, "'proceed.' He looked at me before he proceeded. Indeed he seemed leisurely to read my face, as if its features and lines were characters on a page. The conclusions drawn from his scrutiny, he partially expressed in his succeeding observations. "'I believe you will accept the post I offer you,' he said, and hold it for a while. Not permanently, though. "'any more than I could permanently keep the narrow and the narrowing, "'the tranquil, hidden office of English country incumbent, "'for in your nature is an alloy as detrimental to repose as that in mine, "'though of a different kind.' "'Do explain,' I urged, when he halted once more. "'I will, and you shall hear how poor the proposal is, "'how trivial, how cramping. "'I shall not stay long at Morton now that my father is dead, "'and that I am my own master.' I shall leave the place, probably in the course of a twelve-month. But while I do stay, I will exert myself to the utmost for its improvement. Morton, when I came to it two years ago, had no school. The children of the poor were excluded from every hope of progress. I established one for boys. I mean now to open a second school for girls. I have hired a building for the purpose, with a cottage of two rooms attached to it for the mistress's house. Her salary will be thirty pounds a year. house is already furnished, very simply, but sufficiently, by the kindness of a lady, Miss Oliver, the only daughter of the sole rich man in my parish, Mr. Oliver, the proprietor of a needle factory and iron foundry in the valley. The same lady pays for the education and clothing of an orphan from the workhouse, on condition that she shall aid the mistress in such menial offices connected with her own house, and the school, as her occupation of teaching will prevent her having time to discharge in person. Will you be this mistress?" He put the question rather hurriedly. He seemed half to expect an indignant or at least a disdainful rejection of the offer. Not knowing all my thoughts and feelings, though guessing some, he could not tell in what light the lot would appear to me. In truth, it was humble, but then it was sheltered, and I wanted a safe asylum. It was plodding, but then, compared with that of a governess in a rich house, it was independent, and the fear of servitude with strangers entered my soul like iron. It was not ignoble, not unworthy, not mentally degrading. I made my decision. Thank you for the proposal, Mr. Rivers, and I accept it with all my heart." "'But you comprehend me,' he said. "'It is a village school. Your scholars would be only poor girls, cottagers' children, at the best farmers' daughters. Knitting, sewing, reading, writing, ciphering—will be all you will have to teach. What will you do with your accomplishments? What with the largest portion of your mind, sentiments, tastes?" -"Save them till they are wanted. They will keep." -"You know what you undertake, then?" -"I do." He now smiled, and not a bitter or a sad smile, but one well pleased and deeply gratified. -"And when will you commence the exercise of your function?" I will go to my house to-morrow, and open the school, if you like, next week. Very well. So be it. He rose and walked through the room. Standing still, he again looked at me. He shook his head. What do you disapprove of, Mr. Rivers? I asked. You will not stay at Morton long. No. No. Why? What is your reason for saying so? I read it in your eye. It is not of that description which promises the maintenance of an even tenor in life. I am not ambitious. He started at the word ambitious.
0: Last interruption of the show, just a reminder, everyone, that you can help support the show by going to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron, support the show, become a member of our beer cult, our t-shirt cult, or even get your ads on the show for a monthly fee i've just made it that much easier so everyone else can get the same service that bunny slippers and found item clothing get remember to revate remember to rate review subscribe wherever you rate review subscribe we are on facebook and uh, instagram and twitter and yeah we're people's guide to the cthulhu mythos black clock audio tales And you can support the show, keep the lights going, pay the fees that we need to pay so that we can keep this show going every damn day. All right, everyone, back to Jane Eyre. And remember, next week, we're going to have some Andrew Grace talking about Jane Eyre. And also, the week after this, uh, we'll be doing Wuthering Heights. And we're going to have Ken Height talking about Wuthering Heights. So, double heights. Alright, I hope you're not afraid of heights. Hey, Jane Eyre, right now, and no other ads for the rest of the show, because I love you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. No more stuff. It just dead air Do after this, I swear. So. Alright, let's go.
1: I read it in your eye. It is not of that description which promises the maintenance of an even tenor in life. I am not ambitious. He started at the word ambitious. He repeated, No. What made you think of ambition? Who is ambitious? I know I am, but how did you find it out?" I was speaking of myself. Well, if you are not ambitious, you are—he paused. What? I was going to say, impassioned, but perhaps you would have misunderstood the word, and been displeased. I mean that human affections and sympathies have a most powerful hold on you. I am sure you cannot long be content to pass your leisure in solitude, and devote your working hours to a monotonous labour wholly void of stimulus, any more than I can be content," he added with emphasis. "'To live here, buried in morass, pent in with mountains. My nature that God gave me contravened, my faculties heaven-bestowed, paralysed, made useless. You hear now how I contradict myself. I, who preached contentment with a humble lot, and justified the vocation even of hewers of wood and drawers of water in God's service—I, his ordained minister, almost rave in my restlessness. Well, propensities and principles must be reconciled by some means." He left the room. In this brief hour I had learnt more of him than in the whole previous month, yet still he puzzled me. Diana and Mary Rivers became more sad and silent as the day approached for leaving their brother and their home. They both tried to appear as usual, but the sorrow they had to struggle against was one that could not be entirely conquered or concealed. Diana intimated that this would be a different parting from any they had ever yet known. It would probably, as far as St. John was concerned, be a parting for years. It might be a parting for life. He will sacrifice all to his long-framed resolves she said. Natural affection and feelings more potent still. St. John looks quiet, Jane, but he hides a fever in his vitals. You would think him gentle, yet in some things he is inexorable as death, and the worst of it is, my conscience will hardly permit me to dissuade him from his severe decision. Certainly I cannot for a moment blame him for it. It is right, Christian, noble, it breaks my heart." And the tears gushed to her fine eyes. Mary bent her head low over her work. "'We are now without father. We shall soon be without home and brother,' she murmured. At that moment a little accident supervened, which seemed decreed by fate purposely to prove the truth of the adage, that misfortunes never come singly, and to add to their distresses the vexing one of the slip between the cup and lip. St. John passed the window reading a letter. He entered. "'Our Uncle John is dead,' said he. Both the sisters seemed struck, not shocked or appalled. The tidings appeared in their eyes rather momentous than afflicting. "'Dead?' repeated Diana. "'Yes.' She riveted a searching gaze on her brother's face. "'And what then?' she demanded in a low voice. "'What then, Di?' he replied, maintaining a marble immobility of feature— what, then? Why nothing? Read." He threw the letter into her lap. She glanced over it, and handed it to Mary. Mary perused it in silence, and returned it to her brother. All three looked at each other, and all three smiled—a dreary, pensive smile enough. "'Amen! Oh, we can yet live,' said Diana at last. "'At any rate, it makes us no worse off than we were before,' remarked Mary only it forces rather strongly on the mind the picture of what might have been," said Mr. Rivers, and contrasts it somewhat too vividly with what is. He folded the letter, locked it in his desk, and again went out. For some minutes no one spoke. Diana then turned to me. "'Jane, you will wonder at us and our mysteries,' she said and think us hard-hearted beings not to be more moved at the death of so near a relation as an uncle, but we had never seen him or known him. He was my mother's brother. My father and he quarrelled long ago. It was by his advice that my father risked most of his property in the speculation that ruined him. Mutual recrimination passed between them. They parted in anger, and were never reconciled. My uncle engaged afterwards in more prosperous undertakings. It appears he realized a fortune of twenty thousand pounds. He was never married, and had no near kindred but ourselves and one other person, not more closely related than we. My father always cherished the idea that he would atone for his error, by leaving his possessions to us. That letter informs us that he has bequeathed every penny to the other relation, with the exception of thirty guineas, to be divided between St. John, Diana, and Mary Rivers for the purchase of three mourning rings. He had a right of course to do as he pleased, and yet a momentary damp is cast on the spirits by the receipt of such news. Mary and I would have esteemed ourselves rich with a thousand pounds each, and to singe John such a sum would have been valuable, for the good it would have enabled him to do. This explanation given, the subject was dropped, and no further reference made to it by either Mr. Rivers or his sisters. The next day I left Marsh End for Morton. The day after Diana and Mary quitted it for distant B, in a week, Mr. Rivers and Hannah repaired to the parsonage, and so the old grange was abandoned. End of chapter 30. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Jane Eyre, by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter thirty one. My home, then, when I at last find a home, is a cottage, a little room with whitewashed walls and a sanded floor, containing four painted chairs and a table, a clock, a cupboard, with two or three plates and dishes, and a set of tea things in delf. Above, a chamber of the same dimensions as the kitchen, with a deal bedstead and chest of drawers small, yet too large to be filled with my scanty wardrobe, though the kindness of my gentle and generous friends has increased that, by a modest stock of such things as are necessary. It is evening. I have dismissed, with the fee of an orange, the little orphan who serves me as a handmaid. I am sitting alone on the hearth. This morning the village school opened. I had twenty scholars. But three of the number can read. None write or cipher. Several knit, and a few sew a little. They speak with the broadest accent of the district. At present, they and I have a difficulty in understanding each other's language. Some of them are unmannered, rough, intractable, as well as ignorant. But others are docile, have a wish to learn, and evince a disposition that pleases me. I must not forget that these coarsely clad little peasants are of flesh and blood as good as the scions of gentlest genealogy, and that the germs of native excellence, refinement, intelligence, kind feeling, are as likely to exist in their hearts as in those of the best-born. My duty will be to develop these germs. Surely I shall find some happiness in discharging that office. Much enjoyment I do not expect in the life-opening before me yet it will, doubtless, if I regulate my mind, and exert my powers as I ought, yield me enough to live on from day to day. Was I very gleeful, settled, content, during the hours I passed in yonder bare, humble schoolroom this morning and afternoon? Not to deceive myself, I must reply,—No, I felt desolate, to a degree. I felt—yes, idiot that I am. I felt degraded. I doubted I had taken a step which sank instead of raising me in the scale of social existence. I was weakly dismayed at the ignorance, the poverty, the coarseness of all I heard and saw round me. But let me not hate and despise myself too much for these feelings. I know them to be wrong. That is a great step gained. I shall strive to overcome them. To-morrow, I trust, I shall get the better of them partially and in a few weeks, perhaps, they will be quite subdued. In a few months, it is possible, the happiness of seeing progress, and a change for the better in my scholars, may substitute gratification for disgust. Meantime, let me ask myself one question. Which is better? To have surrendered to temptation, listened to passion, made no painful effort, no struggle, but to have sunk down in the silken snare? fallen asleep on the flowers covering it, wakened in a southern clime among the luxuries of a pleasure villa, to have been now living in France, Mr. Rochester's mistress, delirious with his love half my time, for he would—oh yes, he would have loved me well for a while! He did love me—no one will ever love me so again. I shall never more know the sweet homage given to beauty, youth, and grace for never to any one else shall I seem to possess these charms. He was fond and proud of me. It is what no man besides will ever be. But where am I wondering, and what am I saying, and above all feeling? Whether it is better, I ask, to be a slave in a fool's paradise at Marseilles, fevered with delusive bliss one hour, suffocating with the bitterest tears of remorse and shame the next, or to be a village schoolmistress, free and honest, in a breezy mountain nook in the healthy heart of England. Yes, I feel now that I was right when I adhered to principle and law, and scorned and crushed the insane promptings of a frenzied moment. God directed me to a correct choice. I thank his providence for the guidance. Having brought my eventide musings to this point, I rose, went to my door, and looked at the sunset of the harvest day, and at the quiet fields before my cottage which, with the school, was distant half a mile from the village. The birds were singing their last strains. The air was mild, the dew was balm. While I looked, I thought myself happy, and was surprised to find myself ere long weeping. And why? For the doom which had reft me from adhesion to my master. For him I was no more to see. For the desperate grief and fatal fury, consequences of my departure, which might now, perhaps, be dragging him from the path of right, too far to leave hope of ultimate restoration thither. At this thought, I turned my face aside from the lovely sky of Eve and lonely Vale of Morton. I say lonely, for in that bend of it visible to me there was no building apparent, save the church and the parsonage—half hidden trees, and quite at the extremity, the roof of Vale Hall, where the rich Mr. Oliver and his daughter lived. I hid my eyes and leant my head against the stone frame of my door, but soon a slight noise near the wicket, which shut in my tiny garden, from the meadow beyond it, made me look up. A dog—old Carlo, Mr. Rivers' pointer, as I saw in a moment, was pushing the gate with his nose, and St. John himself leant upon it with folded arms, his brow knit, his gaze, grave almost to displeasure, fixed on me. I asked him to come in. No!— I cannot stay. I have only brought you a little parcel my sisters left for you. I think it contains a colour-box, pencils, and paper." I approached to take it. A welcome gift it was. He examined my face, I thought, with austerity, as I came near. The traces of tears were doubtless very visible upon it. "'Have you found your first day's work harder than you expected?' he asked. "'Oh, no! On the contrary, I think in time I shall get on with my scholars very well." "'But perhaps your accommodations—your cottage, your furniture—have disappointed your expectations. They are in truth scanty enough, but—' I interrupted. "'My cottage is clean and weather-proof, my furniture sufficient efficient and commodious. All I see has made me thankful, not despondent. I am not absolutely such a fool and sensualist as to regret the absence of a carpet, a sofa and silver plate. Besides, five weeks ago I had nothing. I was an outcast, a beggar, a vagrant. Now I have acquaintance, a home, a business. I wonder at the goodness of God, the generosity of my friends, the bounty of my lot. I do not repine. But you feel solitude and oppression. The little house there behind you is dark and empty." I have hardly had time yet to enjoy a sense of tranquillity, much less to grow impatient under one of loneliness. Very well. I hope you feel the content you express. At any rate, your good sense will tell you that it is too soon yet to yield to the vacillating fears of Lot's wife. What you had left before I saw you, of course, I do not know. But I counsel you to resist firmly every temptation which would incline you to look back. Pursue your present career steadily, for some months at least." "'It is what I mean to do,' I answered." St. John continued, "'It is hard work to control the workings of inclination, and turn the bent of nature. But that it may be done, I know from experience. God has given us, in a measure, the power to make our own fate and when our energies seem to demand a sustenance they cannot get, when our will strains after a path we may not follow, we need neither starve from inanition, nor stand still in despair. We have but to seek another nourishment for the mind, as strong as the forbidden food it longed to taste, and perhaps purer, and to hew out for the adventurous foot a road as direct and broad as the one fortune has blocked up against us, if rougher than it. A year ago, I was myself intensely miserable, because I thought I had made a mistake in entering the ministry. Its uniform duties wearied me to death. I burned for the more active life of the world, for the more exciting toils of a literary career, for the destiny of an artist, author, orator—anything rather than that of a priest—yes, the heart of a politician, of a soldier, of a votary of glory, a lover of renown, a luster after power, beat under my curate's surplice. I considered. My life was so wretched, it must be changed, or I must die. After a season of darkness and struggling, light broke, and relief fell. My cramped existence all at once spread out to a plain without bounds. My powers heard a call from heaven to rise, gather their full strength, spread their wings, and mount beyond ken. God had an errand for me to bear which afar, to deliver it well, skill and strength, courage and eloquence, the best qualifications of soldier, statesman, and orator, were all needed—for these all centre in the good missionary. A missionary I resolved to be. From that moment my state of mind changed—the fetters dissolved and dropped from every faculty, leaving nothing of bondage but its galling soreness, which time only can heal. My father indeed imposed the termination, but since his death I have not a legitimate obstacle to contend with—some affairs settled, a successor for Morton provided, an entanglement or two of the feelings broken through or cut asunder, a last conflict with human weakness in which I know I shall overcome, because I have vowed that I will overcome, and I leave Europe for the East." He said this in his peculiar, subdued, yet emphatic voice looking, when he had ceased speaking, not at me, but at the setting sun, at which I looked too. Both he and I had our backs towards the path leading up the field to the wicket. We had heard no step on that grass-grown track. The water running in the vale was the one lulling sound of the hour and scene. We might well then start when a gay voice, sweet as a silver bell, exclaimed. "'Good evening, Mr. Rivers.' And good evening, old Carlo. Your dog is quicker to recognize his friends than you are, sir. He pricked his ears, and wagged his tail when I was at the bottom of the field. And you have your back towards me now." It was true. Though Mr. Rivers had started at the first of those musical accents, as if a thunderbolt had split a cloud over his head, he stood yet at the close of the sentence, in the same attitude in which the speaker had surprised him, his arm resting on the gate, his face directed towards the west he turned at last with measured deliberation. A vision, as it seemed to me, had risen at his side. There appeared, within three feet of him, a form clad in pure white, a youthful, graceful form, full yet fine in contour, and when, after bending to caress Carlo, it lifted up its head and threw back a long veil, there bloomed under his glance a face of perfect beauty. Perfect beauty is a strong expression, but I do not retrace or qualify it as sweet features as ever the temperate clime of Albion moulded, as pure hues of rose and lily as ever her humid gales, and vapoury skies generated and screened, justified, in this instance, the term. No charm was wanting, no defect was perceptible. The young girl had regular and delicate lineaments, eyes shaped and coloured as we see them in lovely pictures, large and dark and full the long and shadowy eyelash which encircles a fine eye with so soft a fascination the pencilled brow which gives such clearness the white smooth forehead which adds such repose to the livelier beauties of tint and ray the cheek oval fresh and smooth the lips fresh too ruddy healthy sweetly formed the even and gleaming teeth without flaw the small dimpled chin the ornament of rich plenteous tresses All advantages, in short, which combined, realized the ideal of beauty, were fully hers. I wondered, as I looked at this fair creature, I admired her with my whole heart. Nature had surely formed her in a partial mood, and forgetting her usual stinted stepmother dole of gifts, had endowed this, her darling, with a grand dame's bounty. What did St. John Rivers think of this earthly angel? I naturally asked myself that question, as I saw him turn to her, and look at her, and as naturally I sought the answer to the inquiry in his countenance. He had already withdrawn his eye from the perry, and was looking at a humble tuft of daisies which grew by the wicket. "'A lovely evening, but late for you to be out alone,' he said, as he crushed the snowy heads of the closed flowers with his foot. "'Oh, I only came home from S.' she mentioned the name of a large town some twenty miles distant,—this afternoon. Papa told me you had opened your school, and that the new mistress was come, and so I put on my bonnet after tea, and ran up the valley to see her. This is she?" pointing to me. It is, said St. John. Do you think you shall like Morton? she asked of me, with a direct and naïve simplicity of tone and manner, pleasing, if childlike. I hope I shall. I have many inducements to do so. Did you find your scholars as attentive as you expected? Quite. Do you like your house? Very much. Have I furnished it nicely? Very nicely, indeed. And made a good choice of an attendant for you in Alice Wood? You have, indeed. She is teachable and handy. This, then, I thought, is Miss Oliver, the heiress, Favoured, it seems, in the gifts of fortune as well as in those of nature. What happy combination of the planets presided over her birth, I wonder! "'I shall come up and help you to teach sometimes,' she added. "'It will be a change for me to visit you now and then, and I like a change. Mr. Rivers, I have been so gay during my stay at S. Last night, or rather this morning, I was dancing till two o'clock.' The Blank Regiment is stationed there since the riots, and the officers are the most agreeable men in the world. They put all our young knife-grinders and scissor merchants to shame." It seemed to me that Mr. St. John's under lip protruded, and his upper lip curled a moment. His mouth certainly looked a good deal compressed, and the lower part of his face unusually stern and square, as the laughing girl gave him this information. He lifted his gaze, too, from the daisies, and turned it on her an unsmiling, a searching, a meaning gaze it was. She answered it with a second laugh, and laughter well became her youth, her roses, her dimples, her bright eyes. As he stood, mute and grave, she again felt caressing Carlo. "'Poor Carlo loves me,' said she. He is not stern and distant to his friends, and if he could speak, he would not be silent." As she patted the dog's head, Bending with native grace before his young and austere master, I saw a glow rise to that master's face. I saw his solemn eye melt with sudden fire, and flicker with resistless emotion. Flushed and kindled thus, he looked nearly as beautiful for a man as she for a woman. His chest heaved once, as if his large heart, weary of despotic constriction, had expanded, despite the will, and made a vigorous bound for the attainment of liberty. But he curbed it, I think, as a resolute rider would curb a rearing steed. He responded neither by word nor movement to the gentle advances made him. "'Papa says you never come to see us now,' continued Miss Oliver, looking up. "'You are quite a stranger at Vale Hall. He is alone this evening, and not very well. Will you return with me and visit him?' "'It is not a seasonable hour to intrude on Mr. Oliver,' answered St. John. "'Not a seasonable hour! but I declare it is. It is just the hour when papa most wants company, when the works are closed and he has no business to occupy him. Now, Mr. Rivers, do come! Why are you so very shy and so very sombre? She filled up the hiatus, his silence left by a reply of her own. "'I forgot,' she exclaimed, shaking her beautiful curled head as if shocked at herself. "'I am so giddy and thoughtless. Do excuse me. It had slipped my memory that you have good reasons to be indisposed for joining in my chatter. Diana and Mary have left you, and Morehouse is shut up, and you are so lonely. I am sure I pity you. Do come and see papa." "'Not to-night, Miss Rosamond, not to-night." Mr. St. John spoke almost like an automaton—himself only knew the effort it cost him thus to refuse. "'Well, if you are so obstinate, I will leave you, for I dare not stay any longer the dew begins to fall. Good evening." She held out her hand. He just touched it. Good evening, he repeated, in a voice low and hollow as an echo. She turned, but in a moment returned. Are you well? she asked. Well might she put the question—his face was as blanched as her gown. Quite well, he enunciated, and with a bow he left the gate. She went one way, he another. She turned twice to gaze after him as she tripped fairy like down the field. He, as he strode firmly across, never turned at all. This spectacle of another's suffering and sacrifice rapt my thoughts from exclusive meditation on my own. Diana Rivers had designated her brother, inexorable as death. She had not exaggerated. End of chapter thirty one.